0: The National Archives Podcast Series Challenges Facing the National Archives, presented by Oliver Morley and Dr. Andrew Foster. Well, welcome, everybody. My name's Andrew Foster, and I'm an early modern British historian by background. But I'm here today to interview Oliver because I'm the chair of the Historical Association Committee for Public History. And that committee is very concerned about what we're calling the wider infrastructure of history, archives, galleries, museums and libraries, all of which we see as in some ways under threat and problems at the moment. And I'm also, as a member of the HA Council, being a member, privileged to be a member of the stakeholders group that has existed for the last year or so, working with Oliver and, and his colleagues, hearing a bit about some of the problems, that the cuts and so on, that have been going on. My interview, I suppose I need to say then, is with Oliver Morley, who is acting chief executive of the National Archives. Do I still call you Keeper of the Public
1: Records as well? You do, you do. I think actually Keeper of the National Archives is probably more holistic in terms of of, of where we'd be, which I know uh, my predecessor but one used to describe herself as. So I think that probably covers the full scope. Keeper is entirely fine.
0: But have we also, you moved into sort of information management somewhere in your title?
1: Well, there is a wider role, which is I'm responsible as government head of profession for knowledge and information management. So that is a thing I do. Um, It is included in my title, and it's still something that we're very focused on at the National Archives. To be honest, my title would probably be the longest in government if I was to use the full set of statutory duties that accord to me. Um, (laughs) I'm going to come on to that. So so I'll (laughs)
0: avoid using all of them. Right. Well thanks very much though for agreeing to do this interview and I should perhaps say to everybody again what the purpose of this is, it's very much a a general interview about broader issues for a wider public and one of my jobs as the fool in the chair so to speak is to ask questions when I feel any jargon has come in or something else along the way. So perhaps I can lob you the first one which I think is how would you describe the nature and work of the National Archives?
1: At a very simple level the National Archives in my view it's primary responsibility is to collect, preserve and make accessible the government record. It has wide responsibilities around records and archives in other spheres, so for example religious, as we've just seen recently, private archives, business archives, those kind of areas. But our primary responsibility is to really make sure that the government record is recorded and preserved well for the future. And at least as much of that is to make it as accessible as possible to everyone, all of the people who use us either for work or for pleasure in everyday lives. So it's an organisation that spans quite a lot of of issues and I think one of the most important things about the National Archives, and in fact archives in general, is that we are living. We are making available records to the existing records, to all and sundry, but we're also making sure that we're collecting the historical record for the future. And the two create something that's quite different, I think,
0: from other sectors. Could you just ask, answer a basic question about just how big an organisation it is?
1: Absolutely. We're around 600 people, and obviously the cuts will have a longer-term impact on that, but we're around 600 people, and, and I roughly, cons- you know, there are there's obviously back office and, and those kind of areas, but it roughly splits into, in some ways, around a third, a third, a third, around those kind of collection, preservation, and access areas, and I, I would probably argue that that, uh, that reflects the fact that they are all important areas to us. They're all very critical.
0: That's kind of moved in. in that another question in a sense is the balance of that work. I suppose I was crudely putting when we were talking earlier about what mantra you use. For me I think of it as collection, conservation, cataloguing, I suppose contextualization. I'm into my big C's. And communication under each of those kind of headings if I give you the guess. So it's, it, what is the balance of work and how has that been changing in time?
1: Well I, you know, the, the, as I think we would all agree, the largest change for everyone has been the impact of digital technology on the way archives work. And that applies to all of, of your Cs. I'll try and recall some of them. But, you know, in terms of cataloguing and contextualization, obviously a big part of that is a digital workload, even around historical records. Mm-hmm. There still needs to be a digital focus. It, the way I would put it is that there is no researcher in the world today who does not use digital resources. You know, even if you are very much looking at early modern records, for example, you will still be using digital records throughout that process. So the balance, I would say, has, in some ways, has not necessarily changed that significantly. What has changed is the percentage of the work that is done digitally as opposed to with physical records in the past. So it'd be interesting to compare it historically I suspect the change has not actually been as marked as people would say, but the skills have had to be far more wide.
0: Moving topics slightly, obviously we're all aware we're living in in parlous times, a new age of austerity people are talking about. How has the National Archives coped with the cuts to date, by which I mean some of the things that you've had to do in the last year or so, the Mm -hmm. first phase really, which included of course the Distressing for many in the academic community, but understandable. I know the Monday closing and the car park fees and those sorts of things. How is how is all that working out? Because I think you were going to be monitoring that. How have yeah. people adjusted and shifted to other times of the week and other things like that? And from our your evidence shows.
1: Well, we've done a proper lessons learned review. I mean, it, it would be fair to say that there are a lot of people who are interested in this. I should probably give some context, but our work reduced costs over the last year across government and also the wider academic community to to see what happens. In terms of our approach, which was to save 10% in this financial year, we have looked at a staff reduction of around 35 people, and we looked at last year, as I say, and also looking to close one additional day a week, so we now have a five-day week rather than a six-day week. So that's the the savings program that we initiated, and it was, as you would have experienced, it was, it was tough, I have to say, for exec team and, and my predecessor to put that into place. Certainly the thinking behind it was that in financially straightened times that were to come, it would be very difficult to implement that kind of program and do it in a way that allowed us, well, let us afford it, to be honest. Yeah. The results were significant. I mean, the first thing is that we said we would save around £4.2 million, and we have done. So we've audited the the results. The other element, I would say, was the question of the quality of customer service in the reading rooms. And we have seen incredibly, actually, no decline at all in the number of records. We audited it on a um, monthly basis. Uh, the number of documents that have been provided to the public has not declined at all. In fact, it's slightly up. So the public has, all credit to them, responded to the change in opening hours by simply adjusting their, yeah. um, their use of the records. There's been no impact on demand, it's still very considerable, and in fact a lot of our staff in document services have had to work extremely hard to meet the additional demand in those, in those times, but it's been um, successful. Customer satisfaction has not declined. So we're looking at our customer satisfaction figures. The ones earlier in the year were around, I think, 93% mark. And our current survey is showing we will certainly be um, around that kind of level. So there is no indication that customer satisfaction has fallen either. I don't think that's a reason to then say, oh, well, we could cut opening hours more.
0: (laughs) glad to hear that. (laughs) I should
1: preempt that (laughs) question. But what it did show was that a reasonable reduction in opening hours was acceptable. It may not have been ideal for everyone considered, but it certainly was better than not doing it. And we fundamentally work from the precept that sometimes quality is better than quantity. Um, And in this case, when it came to service, that's what we were focused on, quality rather than quantity. What that has let us do for the years to come is we've made the savings in advance. We are saving from the baseline before the cuts so it allows us to largely shift the savings that we made last year into this year so we don't have to make any further redundancies over the next four years.
0: Very good news, I mean that is empty. I mean the $64,000 question is you know, obviously when you first made those cuts that was even before the coalition government and what we knew about uh, what was going to then happen, and so the big question on everybody's mind is is what do you forecast for the next few years, what have you now had to do in light of uh, the coalition government?
1: Well, I mean, as I said, we, we will be taking the staff numbers down, but not very hugely, and I've presented this to staff, so it's no big news, but largely out of turnover, mm-hmm. And we do not expect to have to stretch things too far. So we may be around 580, that kind of level, by the the end of this period, end of the CSR period. But it is not a significant reduction beyond our current staffing levels. Um, What we are going to have to do is reduce the amount we spend on investment. And we are also closing um, or cutting our London office in terms of our estate, not our people. So we're moving people into Q, consolidating on Q. So you'll be pleased to know as well that Q will remain... A feature of our estate strategy for the next four years and I think the com- those combination of things will allow us to basically sustain really a similar level of service that we have now. I don't I can't guarantee because you know you look at what's happening across the RSC. you don't know yeah. what will happen in terms of government funding but with our CSR settlement we would be able to maintain that level of service going forward.
0: Could I broaden the discussion a bit in a sense because I know the National Archives were deeply involved in a Strategic document, wasn't it? It was Archives for the 21st Century, yeah. which again I think was what, about a year or so ago now? Yes. That was, that was launched. And that was on behalf of archives throughout the country and, 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 and had a bigger remit to it, which you were, I think, heavily involved in. So, where does that leave that strategy, though, the cuts that are going on? And I speak partly coming from uh, West Sussex, where I know fairly draconian cuts are likely to be hitting a, a, a department, an archive, county record office that's already been rather savagely hit. Mm. And that's happening all around the country, and we're hearing those reports coming into the Historical Association. Uh, I mean, it is clearly an area which we are
1: concerned about. We're concerned about for a number of reasons. There's one which is a purely legal reason, which is my responsibility as Keeper of the Public Record, is to be concerned about the quality of record, record storage and provision of those records and we have previously engaged with local authorities who we have felt not to be, and we've done that under my watch as well, who we felt who've not been providing proper preservation for their records. So it's something we feel very strongly about. More generally archives for the 21st century um, is the right strategy. It was, it was cross-party, it was quite generally supported. Do I think there is an opportunity to refresh it considering the times which, you know, under which we currently work. Yes, I, I think we need to be far more definitive, to be honest, about how we can help archives in this climate and how archives can help themselves in this climate. Realistically, we are going to have to all confront some of the issues, much as, as we've had to, um, and work through them in a way that means that we maintain the quality of archive kind of services more generally. What that means, it's a bit early to say, but uh, um, certainly, I think it will be a priority for us over the coming months.
0: Mm. I know that one of the issues, I think, in possibly being felt more out in the uh, provinces has been the issues about conservation mm. and the number of conservators now there. It's a very technical uh, job, a very specialist job. And um, I don't know whether that means that sort of problems will come back to you in the sense of more work coming in of a different kind.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly, that is one of the concerns we have. Without a thriving archive sector, then potentially there will be risks to place a deposit, that kind of thing, and that that will, that will and could mean um, additional workload for the National Archives, and we are you know, we are not unstretched. And I don't want to be complacent about our funding settlement, we've done well to get where we are now, but that doesn't mean we can take on lots of additional work. So yes, it is a concern, and I think the focus on the wider archive sector is therefore something we have to be, um, uh, we, we cannot lose. Um I will probably be stepping up.
0: I suppose a general question to uh, coming in this way but can get put both ways, in a sense, what do you what do you see as the essentials of an archive service that we all need to fight for, uh, in a sense? What are the essentials for this country, in a sense? Uh,
1: for this country. Well, I mean it goes back to these key questions of, of collection preservation and access. To start with collection, because I, I think it's quite often ignored in the archive mm. debate, one of the important benefits that archive services can offer is that kind of rather prosaic records management, information management capability to their local authority, which in a lot of cases they're they're not necessarily providing at present. And there is expertise in the sector where there are really successful archives doing that. There is no question as to the benefit they provide their local authority. So that is a really important part of things. And is that key question of value along with the cultural research side. Preservation clearly in some ways the core role of the archive and it's one which we are particularly concerned about because of the the legal framework under which we operate. So we want to be in a position where I quite often describe it as, as I want to be in a position where I can sleep at night when it comes to the preservation issues. So fundamentally for a national sector we need to be providing ways to preserve that are cost effective, efficient but meet the preservation requirements that we all believe are necessary. And then finally, access. You know, If you are making your point to your local authority partner, you also need to make your point to the public. There is, I think, partly because, we're, I'm sure we'll come on to MLA, but partly because of the MLA's work over the past couple of years, there is a clear understanding that there are many ways in which to make archive services available to the public. The important thing is that they're made available to the public. Yeah. And... You know, the degree of initiative and innovation that I think nationally we use to bring archives to life could in some ways be pushed by this cost crisis to really, really, you know, we could show real innovation, real interest in giving access to archives in ways that haven't been done before. So it'll be interesting to see what happens.
0: And the Historical Association, of course, has long been familiar with the work of people like Andrew Payne and your education department. And again, though, one of the things that's going on out in the provinces is I think, uh, whereas, say, 20, 30 years ago, there were education archivists attached to many county record offices, that's no longer the case. I think it's uh, it's a real problem area. So that presentation, access, and interpretation, and helping people to make better use of the material is something that we've all got a job to do. And, And I know you play a big part in that already.
1: Yes, and I, I think that's that's not to say that preservation isn't vital. But I, you know, what would worry me most nationally would be if we were falling into a trap where we were only focused on preservation. It is very fundamental that those two other elements are pushed forward as much as possible.
0: Mm. I suppose, in a sense, we've been answering another put another way is is what you see as the main challenges to the work of the national archives over the next five to ten years. Well, I tend to answer
1: that, you know, once, once we move beyond the cost question, which is obviously really significant for everyone, but then I, I tend to move, move on to the question of digital, because I think, you know, our recent Religious Archive Survey and more generally the question as to how digital records are being looked after by government, by whoever, is probably our biggest issue. For me, and I've put this a few times, I am of the view that we really need to get to a point with digital preservation where we have um, business as usual clear, where we can um, say definitively, this is what our expectations are around digital preservation. We can manage that at the National Archives. We can manage it when the records come to us. But I think the important question is, how can we make it easy, cheap to be honest, for people to be able to manage uh, digital records well for the future? Um, And for me that I think will be the the main challenge to come. Mm. And it's interesting talking to the wider, the international archive community, it's very clear that there isn't any definition really there on how best to manage digital preservation for
0: the future. Yes, and it's raising, I mean we're on that whole topic of the impact of the digital revolution on. Archives in general, but it's also having a major impact on education. But uh, it's having the interface between that. I'm talking with a number of research students about the whole issue of catalogues and search engines and the distinction between those and what's going on. But perhaps we can leave that one in a sense. But if we uh, stay with the digital, though, in the sense of what are the current priorities on the digital side? Because I know one of the tasks that you've got is this huge. Capture of government records now, isn't it? This is the one that was mm-hmm. in the press, the celebrated having the authority to do it, and then capture so many websites a year, isn't it, of every government department? You
1: know. Yeah. So I mean, I think it's been a. Um, I was discussing it the other day. It's been somewhat of a surprise how successful our web continuity initiative has been. I mean, initially it was your rather traditional web archive, where we go to people and and offer the option for us to archive their services, in which people quite often say yes. But then the usage is very low, and there are other web archives which really don't have very high usage at all. The change, dare I say, the innovation that our team came up with was to automatically redirect people on a broken link. So where a government department has effectively changed the website, and the best example is after the last election, they didn't need to archive because we were doing the archiving, and what it meant was if you clicked through on some records, say, from the previous administration that had been published, you would get automatically redirected to the web archive. And the difference is so far, in about a year and a half, we've had half a billion redirects, which is probably makes us one of the most used web archives in the world. Um, I haven't compared it against the Internet Archive, but certainly we are very heavily used. Now, what's interesting about that in terms of digital record going forward is that you can see a scenario where if you take some key historical records that you would always have considered as being historical, so for example, ministerial correspondence, that kind of thing, a good piece of the email that is available, again, between relatively senior people, um, but sufficient to get a really good feel as to the historical record, and that that is published, particularly when you add in the government's agenda on transparency, um, you're getting quite close to a complete digital record, and that's what I mean about getting to business as usual. it's really seeing your way to a way to, to somehow making it completely seamless for us to collate the historical record when it comes to the digital side of things. and I think the interesting thing about these times, one useful part of it, is that whereas maybe a few years ago people might not have felt that things were particularly historical yeah. The last year or so has been incredibly valuable historically and a lot of the correspondence um, has in fact both used historical records to drive for example the creation of the coalition government but also the creation itself of that coalition government has uh, elements of his
0: history about it too. But what you're talking about also is an incredible explosion of data and I think I've seen some data that you, you put out yourselves, in a sense that the accumulation of the historical records has now sort of taken off in a, yes. sort of an incredible way, mm. which is, in a sense, causes a further kind of problem for you in terms of the, say, has, it, has the whole work of the National Archive shifted to sort of cope with the problems of the 20th century and 21st century records? Uh,
1: well, I mean, based on the simple staffing levels, no. Um, <laughs> I mean, web continuity is a fairly small team. And right. one of the, the wonders of the internet, of course, is, is that you can scale. And technology is that you can scale far yeah. more. When it comes to supplying documents in the reading rooms, that is far more labor intensive. Mm. We deliver five hundred to 600,000 records a year in the reading rooms with a significant number of people. And via ourselves and our internet partners, we're delivering 110 million records a year. So mm. it's, you know, our, our view is that the levels of resourcing are about right, but it's, you know, you have scale. I, w- I would say quite categorically, actually, that there hasn't been a shift towards the digital record. It simply reflects the reality of digital content, mm. that, both on the historical side and the, the new stuff coming in.
0: And that's that's because you've got a constant program now of rolling out material online yeah. from all periods. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and how is that going? Is that something that's going to speed up over the next few years? Or
1: I think speeding up is. I mean, speeding up is a really interesting question. One of the things, the first thing I should say is, is as far as I can tell, we're probably the most digital archive in the world, um, in, in the national archive anyway, in mm. terms of. What, we're, what we have put up online, either by ourselves or, or via the licensing program, which is a good place to be. The reality is, though, we are never going to digitise everything. It's, it's just not possible. We have too many records, and so we will always provide a physical service. Having said that, um, we have, you know, 100,000 or so visitors a year, there's a lot, of, a lot of digital imaging, there's a lot of interest from our, our volunteers who, you know, are. are often brilliant cataloguers and we would want to be able to carry on scaling um, that kind of work so we get bigger and bigger and carry on putting stuff online because in the end one of the things that has put us in a good position with government and more widely is the fact that we do have a lot of engagement we do have a lot of interest in both digital and physical content
0: Can I switch tack on you again then? And this is something that came up, I think, in the discussions with the stakeholders group as well. Was that uh, growing concerns, as particularly in the business community, as uh, one of the effects of uh, the, the problems has been businesses going out of business, big old businesses like Wedgwood and so on. Yeah. Is do you think that we have we need greater protection for archives than that provided by the legislation, which I think is basically comes from 1958, doesn't it? In terms of your main remit. Although I have asked a question, I think, elsewhere about just how many pieces of, imp- of legislation have had some impact on what we all now keep and so on. I think immediately, of course, as people will, of the Freedom of Information Act, Data Protection Act, even the recent Equalities Act, all of these have implications for record keeping, even the very way you were describing just a moment ago, the kind of closer relationship almost mm. with the government in terms of government bodies giving you records and it's, you're in a much closer relationship than ever before, it seems to me with nobody else filing ahead of you. You're doing the filing, it seems. Mm. Um, so do we need greater protection for archives than we've got from that original
1: end? I, I, I'm split in, in, in a couple of ways on that issue. I mean, one of the things that I say in defense of the 1958 Act is that it is elegant and simple and short, which you don't necessarily have with legislation nowadays. Mm. It's clear, and even better, it is actually format neutral, so it doesn't matter whether records are digital or paper or they or film or whatever, it, rather fortuitously no one decided to put a, a, a format requirement in there. So it gives really wide scope for the keeper to make sure that records are being preserved whatever the type and whatever the era. So there's a lot to be said for that level of simplicity. In other countries the approach to business archives is quite different and I would say far more expensive, but it does give far better protection for business archives. I think realistically considering the legislative cycle, it's unlikely that we will be able to do much around the Public Records Act. In terms of preservation, there are some changes that are potentially going to be made anyway because of the 30-year rule. I would suspect there won't be additional preservation orders on business. Having said that, we have thus far worked well to, um, I Wedgwood's a good example, to engage in process to make sure that preservation is in place, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So we we work with the existing legislation. I think it's unlikely that we will be in a position to make significant changes to, to add to that protection level in the future though.
0: But you're therefore would say to a general public that, that we should rest assured that there is sufficient protection at the moment and that archives aren't suddenly being binned or leaving the country when an American takeover takes place and they're part of the assets of the company, I suppose. And uh, yeah.
1: I think I would take it on a case-by-case case basis. I certainly wouldn't be able to give a sweeping assurance that Business Archives could, could be protected. I would say generally that where we know where there's an issue, we will, be, we will be in there. I think legislation is problematic in this climate because if we were to put further legislative protection on Business Archives, that would clearly be a cost on business. Mm. And that is not something which is, when we need the private sector to pull us out of the recession, I can't see that as being <laughs> a valid option. But it's, you know, it's certainly one which we're aware of and focused on. Mm.
0: What's your take on this expression that we're hearing more of, community archives, and how they're being kept and, and what's happening there?
1: I think that, you know, I, the first thing to say is, is that obviously engagement and participation from communities more widely is certainly not only worth having, but it's, it, it's one of the core planks of, of what this government is, is, is about. So from that point of view, it's something that we have to support um, and would support. But when it comes to Community Archive, clearly we, again, would be concerned about the way the records are being preserved, assuming they have historical value, and, and the way they're made accessible uh, as well. But I would probably argue even more strongly for the sustainability of that archive. Mm. You know, it, The key question is not whether a community, a community can put together an archive for now, yeah. but whether they can put it together for the long term, because that's, I think, what, that's one of the core aspects of what an archive is, is its longevity.
0: Mm. But as I understand it, you've got no remit, really. If somebody offers you a community archive that they've maintained over a period of 20, 30 years, You you could turn it away. Well, of course, it partially depends
1: on what the archive is. You know, notwithstanding government archives more more generally, I mean, on on all archives, you know, we are going to have to consider the historical value Mm. and also look at at places of deposit that we would consider to be, um, you know, the right place Mm. for those records. So uh, would we turn it away? Again, I'm afraid it depends very much on the the Mm. case-by-case basis.
0: Can I move on to a rather more esoteric, maybe, then, sort of what we mentioned earlier, I think, what changes are envisaged for the way in which cataloguing of records is going on. As I say, this m- phrase, really, search engines, is becoming the kind of more common way now in which people are thinking they're finding things. And this is causing a number of problems, I think, in county record offices as well, where a, a user now goes in and is quite often told, go to the machine and start looking. And it's not anywhere near as comfortable as, as all the books on the shelf, uh, and nor does it necessarily have everything that's in the books on the shelf. So what is happening here? Because I think you're undergoing quite a lot of investigation, aren't you, on, on catalogues and what kind of catalogues and what further user support you're giving?
1: You know, we do provide um, quite significant user support with research guides and and obviously improved finding aids here at the National Archives. Fundamentally, for people who are used to looking through a paper catalogue, there is a moment of disorientation when they first move to an electronic catalogue, but as I said, most regular researchers now are entirely used to an electronic catalogue. The question of quality is a good one. I mean, it's interesting. Some finding aids, some catalogues, are impossible mm. on paper, and if they are moved straight to digital with no, no changes, then to be honest, it is the aficionados who mm. may still be able to understand that catalogue, but uh, in a lot of cases, it becomes less than functional. The answer, therefore, is to consider the quality of the metadata that comes with the cataloguing. Mm and do often do work to improve that quality. When it comes to search, search is is particularly problematic with archives for a variety of reasons, in my view, particularly your page-ranked Google-type search, because popularity doesn't really work.
0: Um,
1: You can't use page ranking to give you an effective response to an archive catalogue. But in some ways, that's the fundamental difference between research and search you know, archives are research institutions. They're um, research institutions with a wide user base stretching far beyond academics and and, and Mm -hmm. historians. But as an important part of, of, of the archive activity, in a way, is people need to engage with many more records than they normally would do if they were looking at a straight Google search. And you will see people going page by page down a list of our search results. And that's part of the experience. Now, what we have to do is to make that as functional and clear and easy to understand and use as possible. We have to come up with, I think as a community, we have to come up with a way to make um, the experience of looking through a catalogue or through search results in an archive as easy to use as possible. And that is something that we are fairly continuously grappling with, actually.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Can I... I, This is a... a self-serving because I, as I've said earlier I'm an early modernist and so uh, all this talk about all the modern digital records and then the digitisation process i mean, what are you doing with the older collections what is it for me the early modernist or the medievalist what are you still doing for me or have you just transferred the stuff to the Cheshire salt mines and, and I now read it online or something like that certainly not
1: no I don't think, I don't think we have any medieval documents in the salt mines actually uh, state papers because of course they've been digitised so, uh, so we have a few which have been digitised beautifully. Fairly well. <laughs> I'm not an expert. I wouldn't claim to be vaguely an expert on the early modern period, so I'm not au okay, fait, but I think we're still doing fine rolls. That's ongoing, ongoing cataloguing, and we've, obviously we're still doing state papers at some scale.
0: The state papers, if I'm correct, is a commercial venture as well, isn't it? It's a combination, yes. and therefore one of the worries, I think, is how far increasingly in the future general members of the public will need access to a particular account in a university. In order to be able to get in on some of the material. I know they can use that material free here.
1: And but, they always
0: uh, will be able and, to. Thank you, that's a very good say. Well, at space. least for the next four years.
1: <laughs> we'll see what happens on the next CSL. but certainly that would be the view.
0: And I think a number of people are coming back with reports about the nature of those catalogues as well, yeah. so that it's not always as clear whether you're in the index or you're in the material and, and certain things like that, and the nature of the extra documents. But those are all teething problems, yeah. that as we grapple with how we best present material now, I think, with catalogues, mm. we're inventing more front ends, aren't we, really, essentially, uh, as ways, ways in.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The, the wider question on catalogues versus online is, is fundamentally, um, as researchers get into the, the the catalogues and the way and the digitised content, they discover ways that, frankly, they could have did they could have catalogued it better. And it takes a while because I'm not entirely sure that. Um, so, for example, if you look at, at some of the microfilm records, traditionally people just like going through lots of records on microfilm as opposed to being able to search, but then finding. it somewhat more difficult how to pass those results.
0: Mm.
1: So it's an interesting question.
0: I've heard it said in in county record offices um, that in a sense we're all suffering from the problems of success because one of the things that they've found is whereas at one time they were budgeted for having a series of microfilm readers in a corner, and so the family historians who came in in great number were put on the census machines or on other machines, but gradually as uh, the public has become better educated about that and as the nature of the cataloguing and the search engines has been that people are asking for the full range of historical documents in a way that a small county record office has therefore not got its rooms geared up for almost yeah. in terms of how it's doing things and so presumably similar things have happened here the problems of success have, have, have caused you know the greater demands across all varieties of records is that, is that the case
1: i i think that's true um but as i said earlier i would rather be a local archive office that has um creditable and clear um, public use the one that can't make that case mm. and and that's certainly something that that we have been able to make the case to central government on you know we are we are both providing you a service in terms of looking after your records and we are bringing history to life for millions of people now I think that's an argument and certainly um, when I've spoken to local authority archives they are of a similar view that that is an ar- argument which is which is very appealing so I would write it's a kind of it's a problem that that is worth having yeah
0: is would be my argument Mm. This is really concluding I suppose on the sort of uh, the David Cameron uh, kind of question of the big society Mm. and I wanted to ask how best can members of the public and also bodies like the Historical Association uh, help to support the work of the National Archives as far as you're concerned for the good of everybody
1: absolutely I, I mean I think the first thing to say is that joining the Friends of the National Archives and obviously um, volunteering as well for some of our projects is always incredibly gratefully received um, uh, and some of the work that has been done has been absolutely terrific. It is, uh, it is something that, that will become more and more important I think over time to us and is uh, not something we will be reducing. I mean one of the important things as I said earlier was that if we want to build scale if we want to carry on making as many records available to as many people as we can, then volunteering plays a very, very important part of that. So, yeah, generally opportunities um, across the board, and I would say just um, also support your local archive office as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you very much, then, Oliver. This event was recorded live on the 29th of November 2010 at the National Archives, queue. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.